Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, Regenerates, and welcome to my next episode with podcaster, complexity, science theorist, and uh, one of the co-founders of the Game, Game B movement, Jim Rutt. I've been really appreciating the Jim Rutt Show, Jim's podcast, for a few months now since I found it um, as one of the best conversations with author and thinker Hansi Freinacht, uh, who's the sort of um, progenitor of the metamodern political theory, which I've been sort of digging into a little bit recently. And um, yeah, I pinged Jim and, and he agreed to hop on to the Planetary Regeneration podcast and have a conversation with me. And we had a, we had a really enlivening conversation. I think um, we sort of spanned from um, getting a little bit of an understanding of his uh, thinking around game A and game B and the framing of that uh, movement, um, some of its origins, and uh, and a little bit of a historical interlude around some attempts that that he and Jordan Hall and others um, made together around the creation of a of a new um, political movement called the Emancipation Party, and um, yeah, some juicy tidbits about sort of the the um, meta systemic strategies and and proto b communities and just opportunities and and necessities for engagement so um yeah really enjoyed the conversation with jim i hope you did as well um enjoy and please um please leave me your your feedback your comments if you if you like what you're hearing please uh give us a rating on itunes um so we can reach more uh, folks like yourself to bring these sort of deep, um, contextually rich and relevant conversations with with folks who are um, leading and engaged with this movement uh, towards planetary regeneration. I, I think there's a lot of ways that the the opportunity of this disruption to kind of recalibrate our priorities could lead to a, a significantly better outcomes than just funding the people who fucked it up in the first place. Exactly, just like 2008. Let's let, let us not repeat that mistake. Yeah, well, it seems unfortunately as though it is, it is to a certain degree being repeated, although I also see, you know, maybe in the silver lining of all of this is that uh, the, the demands on improving individual and kind of community sense-making are, I mean, there's sort of no going back from a, a global pandemic. It's sort of like the earth rise moment. There's something, I, I don't know exactly what, but there's something happening there, I think, which is interesting. I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, in our theories of, uh, of network uh, evolution and, uh, there's two ideas. One's called uh, homeostasis, which is the tendency for complex networks to restitch themselves together after a shock. And the other is hysteresis, mm -hmm. uh, the tendency of the network to change in a way that uh, it doesn't go back. Uh, you know, in a, in a human body, let's say you get a common cold, uh, you're sick for a week or 10 days, and then you go back 
to normal homeostasis the body recreates itself in the previous state plus or minus on the other hand you get your you know leg chopped off in a uh, uh, potato auger uh, ain't no going back from that one sucker right you got to live with one leg yeah and, and uh, so uh, I use those two lenses to look at the current uh, situation and say what will be homeostasis and what will be hysteresis what will change what won't Unfortunately, uh, you know, it's, it's not, there's no guarantee that, that it will be the right mix of things by any means. And, uh, you know, part of, the, part of the role of people who are playing the game seriously about what comes next is to attempt to at least nudge the system towards better, uh, better changes. And certainly, I think something I'm seeing here in our region, in the uh, Shenandoah Valley and the valleys to the west, uh, where I live in one of the uh, western valleys, uh, is uh, a rapid uh, growth, you know, just spurt of local agriculture. Yeah. Uh, uh, in fact, we're going down tomorrow, tomorrow Friday for the first time uh, to pick up our uh, load from a, a newly created, just during the pandemic, uh, loosely associated sort of semi-virtual CSA, which is yep. very interesting. Four different... Uh, small independent farmers have pulled together, used the Lulu software, and have created uh, a system where you can get a, a pretty decent array of stuff, every, everything from chickens to uh, eggs to, uh, I think there's a pork producer in there, as well as some of the uh, uh, hothouse vegetable producers, etc. And, uh, you know, that, that might have happened in a year or two, but this shockwave uh, has created this. Yep. And, and it'll be very interesting to see if, if, if it sticks afterwards. I suspect that it will, that this is you know, part of a long-term trend that we've, I think, both been seeing. And this shock will upregulate that stuff. Yeah, exactly. No, I think, I think it's been a long time coming. There's been a lot of groundwork laid. And I think the biggest obstacle for the sort of transformation into a more diversified, localized uh, food system oftentimes has just been habitual. And, you know, th this, this systemic shock has uh, disrupted those, those habits uh, significantly just by necessity. So I think, you know, if nothing else, I think it is definitely a boon for, uh, at least in some way, a reinvention of our, our sort of supply web and the relationships that, you know, we have with our with our farmers and, and a bit of a bit of a nudging towards relocalization. I mean, I think there's a long way to go to, to get where, where I think the world needs to be in terms of the relationship between our economy, uh, sort of, sort of agroeconomy and, uh, and the rest of the systems. But it, I think this, there is a hysteresis moment taking place. Yeah, on a small scale, you know, I can yeah. say, uh, you know, I'm an internet guy. I've been doing the internet since before there was an internet. So very familiar with the tools, very comfortable there. And so is my wife. And yet we had uh, not used any of the grocery store pickup services uh, historically, right? Uh, right? But now, goddamn, I'm going to go into a uh, store full of people coughing and sneezing, right? And so uh, since about the 10th, maybe before that, 7th of March, we've been using the uh, online ordering systems at the uh, two grocery stores in the little small city that's about an hour's drive from us. And, uh, and I, we said, we we're both saying, God damn it. Why didn't we start doing this earlier? Yeah. And you know, this is so what a 
great time saver for, for also you're much more disciplined you don't buy shit you don't need etc you can be thoughtful about what you need you can yeah. walk over your pantry and take a look and see what you what you're getting low on etc and uh, so well that change may or may not be good unfortunately i think in some ways it may have some bad effects in the short term in that the bigger players are better prepared to play that game yeah walmart uh, <clears throat> I, I thought i heard walmart uh share their quarterly numbers and they were actually looking pretty good yeah kroger too we used kroger mostly it's the probably the best of the stores in our little city uh and there's and there's uh um system is pretty damn good and so it, it may result in you know some of the independent startup groceries like we have a good co-op not in our town but the next town up uh i wonder if their share will go down because more because they probably don't have the scale to offer you know, a, a well-tuned uh, live inventory uh, pickup system. On the other yeah. hand, on the other hand, and this is where it's interesting, short-term and long-term could be different, right? If people get habituated to ordering and pickup, uh, that allows a whole new niche to arise that doesn't own a grocery store at all, right? But let's, let's say the uh, independent farmers get together and build a distribution co-op, which mm -hmm. is essentially a warehouse with yep. a, a couple of drive-through lanes, much less expensive than building an actual grocery store and stocking it with 100 employees. Uh, and then, you know, get people used to ordering online and driving through. It may open up a new niche. So uh, trying to, you know, foresee the unfoldings of a complex system in the short and long term is, well, short term, uh, you can make some predictions in the long term. It's much less difficult, uh, much more, well, uh, much less successful, though at well, least you can hazard some guesses. Yeah, hazard some guesses. I also think there's a sort of, <clears throat> you know, this is where uh, chance, chaos, and free will enter into the picture, right? So how much can a local entrepreneur who sort of sees the trend and, and, and has some understanding of these complex interactions step up and organize you know a bunch of farmers wrangle some logistics together and you know do they have connections to enough you know folks on social media etc to to just get enough of a, a trickle of folks to sort of prove the model and and get some funding and and then and then actually sort of create a transformative game you know game b uh at least proto b um style reimagination of what it means to connect people to the basic goods that they need in their in their life in a way that sort of minimizes overhead and distributes you know efficiently so i to me i think there's an enormous opportunity right there that's been latent for a long time and this disruption opens it up i am kind of over leveraged in my entrepreneurial ventures at the moment otherwise that that indeed would be what i would be focused on right now actually is the um the legit local logist software empowered you know it empowered logistics for um reinventing how people engage with you know basic goods essentially i think there's an enormous opportunity there and i also th i see you know, I don't, I, I don't think that, are you familiar with Thrive Marketplace? Uh, not really. They're a competitor to Amazon uh, and they've done really well. It's curated. So it's a hundred percent sort of like organic, you know, the stuff you'd find at your co-op um, or Whole Foods. And, you know, there's always a dark side to that. It tends to be, you know, over expensive and, 
you know, although I think they try to do a good job to keep prices down. But anyway, they're basically head to head competing with, you know, sort of Amazon pantry and whatnot. And they're doing very well because I imagine so. Yeah, I just pulled them up. Looks good. Uh, yeah. I'll give them a try. Uh, it's funny, you know, there's so many niches. It's funny. Uh, I'm more or less retired and my last of my startups, you know, I have not personally done a startup in a long time, but I have been, you know, on boards and advisors and investors and stuff. My uh, last startup, unfortunately, had to, uh, is in the process of closing its door. Five, you know, it's been staggering, not doing well, but and now done in by COVID-19. Um, so, but frankly, one I wrote off a long time ago. Um, yeah. uh, so that's kind of opened up my entrepreneurial mind a little bit. My wife and I have been wargaming a food-based business idea of our, ourselves, uh, which we call a working title, Meals in a Jar. Mm. Uh, one of the things that we have noticed ourselves doing, and uh, especially when our daughter and son-in-law were down here with us for two months in the first uh, phase of the uh, mini zombie apocalypse is that we uh, we've been cooking a lot of really nice uh, soups and stews and single pot meals and what have you, mm -hmm. but but making double or triple doses and uh, storing them in the freezing or yep. just leaving them in the refrigerator to have for lunch or to have you know two days out for dinner. And you know both my wife and my daughter are amazingly good. Uh, cooks and my son-in-law and I aren't shabby though we have different layers of specialties and uh, you know we we're saying god damn this stuff's good and this you know simple one meal you know one pot or you know one bowl meal uh, is really kind of a handy way to be and we see you know, we start looking around online and you go yeah it's kind of hard to find good quality stuff uh, and so we're thinking uh, it would be kind of interesting to start up here in our local area, staffed with local people, and probably set up on some form of uh, supplier-employee co-op game B-style basis, uh, a business, as I said, which we currently call Meal in a Jar, which would be uh, beautifully done uh, stews and soups, might have a little uh, a super dome on top that has some dry things to add to it. You know, like uh, mm -hmm. one of the things my wife cooked up the other day was a massive uh, batch of tortilla soup. Uh, but it'd be nice to have some, you know, chips, uh, some tortilla strips available, et cetera. Yep. And uh, sell them first locally in our local groceries and, uh, and such, but then also experiment with online, see if we can get it to roll there. And you know, the nice thing about that business is you can start from a quite small scale. Uh, when we look around some of the infrastructure, our local community center, uh, which we helped actually put together, uh, has a commercial kitchen in it. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so one could actually literally start using their commercial kitchen uh, one day a week, uh, producing enough volume for the uh, grocery stores within an hour's drive, which you know might be 25 or something like that, 20, probably less than that. Uh, and then if that works, you know, gear it up to the next level, et cetera. And uh, so, you know, this opportunity- And maybe replicate it. Uh, Go ahead. Well, I was just saying, maybe replicate that out um, network style so that instead of getting bigger manufacturing center, you, you essentially replicate a smaller local, you know, sort of there's brand integrity, but you get another set of folks, you know, in a couple counties over to sort of do the same thing. Yep. Yeah, I like that. What we call in the game B world an X in the box, uh, where an X can be anything. And uh, the box is essentially a set of repeatable processes that can be adapted to local situations. Yeah, it's uh, sort of like, it's like, it's like franchise 2.0. <laughs> yeah, uh, though it would kind of be nice if uh, 
if the extraction was minimized, right? <laughs> right yeah, well, exactly. Or, or, or zero to no extraction. I mean, I think I keep waiting for the, 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 you know, Phoenix from the fire to rise again in, in terms of the next order of um, IT fueled mutual aid societies in all of this, because it seems to me like there's su such a, there's a lot of people in pretty precarious situations. And it, historically, there's been amazing trends of people banding together and taking care of each other, creating their own. I mean, that's basically where insurance comes from, uh, you know, creating insurance without it being extractive, essentially. Yep. And, uh, you know, actually, there's a good friend of mine who has constantly pointed to the mutual aid societies as an interesting model. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, the moose, for instance, things like that, the, the eagles, you know, the, the elks, were... the moose, the quanas. Yeah. And, and before that, I mean, the, the odd fellows and, you know, like the, those histories are so fascinating to me because they were really born out of the, you know, they were born out of some of the most intense social struggles at the peak of kind of, um, I, I'm sort of, I'm trying to pinpoint the, I was just listening to your podcast uh, yesterday with, um, what's the gentleman's name, who is talking about um, Carlotta, Carlotta's work. Ah, yes, Robert Conan Ryan. Robert was describing the cycles. And so a lot of the mutual aid societies were born out of sort of the, I, I think it's the third or fourth industrial revolution cycle, which is the one in the late 1800s, essentially. Yeah, that'd um, be the, that would be the, probably the, considered to be the third. The third, yeah. So, so where, where there's really, it's like, sort of like Upton Sinclair land, where there's peak, you know, sort of peak extraction, people, labor markets are not very mature, there's, um, you know, unions are getting busted up, people are not make, making very much money, there's been a giant dislocation from people in rural areas into urban areas, there's just all of this social upheaval, and that's where a lot of those mutual aid societies were born, that's, that's, the, that's the epoch. Yep. Yep. I think that's a, uh, probably an area well worth looking into. And I, I think that is an important point uh, that, you know, people have struggled with these ideas previously. And, you know, uh, while we probably have to adapt them to the present world, uh, it is worth researching. In fact, currently on the Game B Facebook uh, a group, uh, just the word Game B, all one word on Facebook, a very interesting community going on there. Uh, we're discussing what can we learn from the experience of the Israeli kibbutz movement, for yeah. instance. Um, I, saw, I saw that. I saw that post, and that's really interesting. Well, maybe um, take a let's let's do, do a quick detour here for listeners, and um, maybe if you, if you don't mind giving a quick overview of Game B. Um, you know, I I came across Game B. Oh, I don't know, maybe eight months or a year ago um, as a hashtag on Twitter, essentially, um, and was quite surprised that I hadn't uh, bumped into the game B, although I know a bunch of the folks in the movement, I just sort of had been, um, you know, sort of in quotes, uh, 
leading, participating in, involved in the, the regenerative movement, movement, in quotes, which I, I think is, you know, uh, closely related and or the same, essentially the same stream of thought and impulse. Um, so I, I ran across Game B and started engaging and, and then uh, ran across your podcast, which, which I have to say, Jim, I, I just want to, you know, take a moment to uh, give credit where credit is due. Uh, your podcast has quickly become my favorite podcast and I'm picky and I love the, I love the guests and I love the kind of like, um, how would I put it? Sort of like, uh, friendly, curmudgeonly realism that you you bring that that brings everybody that brings the conversation just right to the point. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you for the kind words, and I like that friendly, curmudgeonly realism. I can't object to any of those. Right off, <laughs> rings the bell. Maybe I'll maybe I'll change my uh, tagline from uh, uh, real thinking about deep ideas to uh, uh, to what was that. Uh, Friendly, uh, curmudgeonly realism. It may be, friendly, maybe one too many adjectives. But, uh, yeah. Realism. I like it. Okay. But yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, let me go on. And, and I will say that we certainly consider uh, the regenerative movement uh, and regenerative ecology to be what we call Game B proximate, which are uh, things that are uh, certainly congruent with Game B, overlap Game B, and there's certainly plenty of Game B people uh, who are quite interested in it, including some of the old-time game beers like uh, Joe Edelman and uh, Joe Brewer, who I would say are, bo are both uh, interested in, th in that domain. And some of the uh, people, one of the persons I've talked to recently who's deeply into that space, uh, uh, Daniel Christian Wall. I have a very good episode with him. Yeah, um, I listened to your episode with Daniel. And Daniel, I've known Daniel for a long time. Um, you know, since sort of before he published his book. And, and I, I also did an episode with Joe Brewer, which was, which was quite good. And I appreciated your conversation with him as well. Yeah, I think they're, um, yeah, b both sort of like, like in that same stream and in that same community. And, and I think uh, thinking quite well, I mean, both of them have um, sort of a depth and breadth uh, polymath approach to to things which I very, very much resonate and appreciate with. So, so anyway, uh, please, I'd love to hear, I mean, I, I have a sense because I've listened to you tell a little bit of the story, but I'd love to just sort of, you know, as, as in service to level setting, um, maybe, you know, tell us a little bit of a story about Game B and, you know, Santa Fe Institute and, you know, wh where it's been and where it's at. And uh, I think that that would be uh, really, sort of helpful story for for listeners yeah okay that sounds uh, like fun i can tell a little bit of the history uh and then but i'll try to get as quickly as i can to the substance right yeah because uh, yeah, yeah. that's uh, what is game b uh if we, if we check the roots back we, i can literally pinpoint an exact day i don't know what the date is but i'd have to look in my calendar uh sometime around maybe 2000 uh nine or thereabouts where uh, a fellow named Jordan Hall and I were both at a Santa Fe Institute board meeting. He was a brand new trustee. I think I was uh, uh, vice chairman at the time. And somehow we just synced. Uh, and we had this amazing six-hour conversation after the board meeting. Uh, and we both realized that we were both on a very similar uh, kind of deep signal. Uh, and we had neither of us had found anybody else that was on that signal. And we started communicating back and forth over a period of time. And then in 2012, 
uh, I wrote a paper uh, that laid out a whole bunch of theories about what was wrong with our society and where we needed to go. And the first person I sent it to was Jordan. And, you know, we both agreed, oh, we got to get some more people together. And uh, that led to us. Find the others. <laughs> find the others, right? Uh, exactly. And we uh, foolishly started a political party called the Emancipation Party, uh, with the website of which is still up. And I still say is the ideas in it are brilliant. Emancipationparty.org. Check it out. Uh, it hasn't been touched since January 2013. So it's kind of like a colonial Williamsburg of radical systems change with some very interesting ideas. We tried to launch it. Uh, we actually found a pretty good uptake amongst boomers, uh, less so amongst Xers, but okay. But here was the big wake-up call. Millennials hated it. I mean, zero take up. Uh, and we did some work being both Jordan and I being business guys. And we had like 20 people involved, several uh, former corporate CEOs and people have really done some things in the world and some uh, fairly eminent scientists, et cetera. So we took, did some rigorous research and we discovered that the whole concept of a political party called a political party was anathema to millennials. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm a millennial and, uh, <laughs> but I love that you did, I, I mean, I love it, and I, I just sort of like drawing a, a correlative here, um, for brief interruption in your storytelling, uh, you know, it sort of reminds me of kind of the metamodern um, approach to politics that, that Hansi Freinach, um, in his books and in his conversations with you, is inviting kind of an early signal to that of, you know, what it looks like. You guys have some positions here, I'm just reading it, but also it looks like there's sort of significant process orientation here? Uh, less so than game B. I mean, it was, it, frankly, it was more policy oriented, uh, institutions oriented. Debt right? Jubilee. I yeah, love the, it. The Debt Jubilee and the Jubilee Ratchet. I think it's, it's a brilliant piece of work, I must say. It was done collaboratively at co high coherence with people that operated high sovereignty. Uh, it was an amazing piece of work. But uh, trying to sell that to millennials was like trying to sell them a shit pie if you called it a political party. And so Jordan, Jordan Hall, uh, when we were kind of debriefing after we realized, uh, yeah, we could sell this to boomers and to a lesser degree Xers, but why would we want to do that? The future is millennials, right? Keep in mind, this was 2012. So the Zoomers weren't yet on the scenes as a significant force. And I would say it's probably even more true of Zoomers, you know, the people uh, that were born uh, whenever the, uh, I guess, uh, 2000. Uh, well, you know, we, we were born in the, in the, the, the neoliberal golden age, the, the millennials and the zoomers, like we, we've been essentially indoctrinated to, be, to believe that the political system is completely irredeemable. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so Jordan had that insight early, give him credit for it. And he went to the whiteboard and said, what we really need is a much broader based, uh, social movement, uh, that first, you know, that starts to envision what the world looks like and communicates that new ways of being with each other, new ethical yeah. systems, and, and and something that can actually be done, right, as opposed to just talked about. And he drew, literally drew a ramp that eventually led people into a political movement. So while yeah. Game B does not currently have a political movement, uh, and uh, may not ever, uh, but I think it probably will in the future, uh, probably at some point, just like Hansi, who I, I've really got to like his work. Uh, you know, Hansi doesn't actually have a political movement e either, but you can think of his work and Game B as uh, 
acculturation and a culture, uh, oper cultural operating system uh, innovation preparatory to uh, eventually uh, political uh, endeavors, uh, possibly. So anyway, let's go back to uh, what are some of the core, so that's, you know, gives us, gets us to like- uh, So it's game B 1.0, right? You've sort yep. of talked, there's been two cycles. So, so out of this realization, of, you know, hey, a political party, okay, hey, maybe not, okay, movement, great, okay, and then, and then you're off and running, yeah, take us on a quick exploration of what the, you know, what the substrate is, what are the principles, what's the vision of, of this movement that you're trying to get fired up here? Okay, the key, uh, the key idea is that game A, which uh, you can uh, pick a lot of different times, for it to have started, I pick about 1700, uh, uh, has brought a tremendous improvement in the human condition. Uh, you know, in 1700, 95% of people were peasants working the land uh, with crude tools mostly, uh, often on the verge of starvation. Uh, many parts of the world overpopulated relative to the carrying capacity of their land. 50% of the kids in the world died before they were five. Uh, no such thing as modern dentistry, you know, no antibiotics. Uh, you know, no power other than uh, a little bit of wind and, and water power, but mostly humans and animals. Uh, you know, it was not that different than it had been 5,000 years ago. And uh, all the parts of game A started pulling together uh, uh, between 1700 and 1800 uh, in terms of, uh, I, I think, one of the key things was the invention of fractional reserve banking in 1694. Uh, science. Uh, you know, through the uh, previous century, the, the Royal Society, Newton, uh, mm -hmm. uh, people like that. And then it accelerated uh, intellectually through the uh, 1700s uh, with the Enlightenment, uh, where we were finally people realized that, uh, you know, 10,000 years worth of superstition and guesses about the nature of reality. Uh, there was now an alternative called science, uh, intersubjective, empirical, experimental based. Uh, way to get something closer to real, solid, dependable knowledge uh, about the world. That changed a whole lot. Uh, and then we also, uh, that mindset, frankly, even more than the actual formal science, uh, led people to rapid experimentation, the Watt steam engine, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it all really took off in 1800 with uh, the beginnings of our use of fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's inter interesting to note, I did a little research on this, uh, no coal was mined in America until about 1804. So America was still in the animal and water power uh, arena until about 1804. Uh, there was a couple of crude steam engines fired with wood but uh, or charcoal, but uh, not much. But then it exploded in the second industrial revolution, the one powered by fossil fuels. The first yeah. was the, you know, all the uh, textile uh, stuff that was done in the 1700s and then the uh, steam powered stuff of the 1800, early 1800s, uh, early part of the 1800s just exploded in the amount of energy humanity could bring to bear to solve its problems. Agricultural productivity went way up, cost of decent clothing went down. Used to be people were lucky to own two sets of clothes, right? Uh, and, you know, they'd wear this, uh, you know, if you lived on a farm like where I am right now, you probably wore the same clothes uh, for six months all winter. Maybe you washed them once, right? Pretty fucking miserable way to live. Uh, but, the, you know, the industrial production of cotton, the ability to ship cotton from the U.S. and India to England to be processed on uh, 
much better ships, et cetera. Yeah, so it all spun up, wow, uh, along the way. Now, of course, it did produce some, uh, a whole bunch of hardship, driving people off their commons land through the enclosure movements. Yeah, I was going to say the, 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 the enclosures and, and tied up in that, the, that entire um, sort of explosion of capital is slavery and indentured servitude. And there's a very sort of like, um, so, so, so there's a simultaneously, there's this tension between the uh, very real, um, I mean, the, pe the people on whose backs that wealth was generated didn't see a lot of the benefit. Put, just put it that way. Yeah, not, not, they certainly didn't receive a fair share of the benefit. And, you know, the classic example is the Dickinsonian factory era in yeah. kind of mid-century uh, Europe. Though it is interesting that, uh, you know, slavery has existed for as far as we know, all the way back uh, to the founding of uh, settled agriculture and settled villages and has been part of every uh, civilization that we know of since. But it did, but it went through a lot of transformations. I mean, I think if you, I mean, we don't need to get sunk on this, but I think this is a, there's an interesting, I, I constantly struggle with this, with this part of the, the sort of the narrative. And, and I think it's really important. And, and somehow, I mean, maybe we can circle back to this later, because I don't want to necessarily, you know, like bump yeah. you off your horse. But I, I do think this topic around how we make sort of like how we face the sort of the, the trauma, grief, um, without being victims, but being really honest about it, 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 it colors, and it, I think it's kind of the most important political topic of the day, actually, because if, if you, you know, especially Gen Z and millennials, you know, we have this sort of like weird censorship thing going and, and like over like policing free speech and all this other stuff. And to me, it's, it's intrinsically tied into how we make sense and what narrative, you know, like, do we just brush it aside or do we wallow in it? Or is there a way in which we like have a realistic appraisal, but we're also moving forward, metabolizing that, you know, anyway. So there's, yeah. there's a real, real juicy conversation to have there. Yeah, I'll, well, I'll gauge it a little bit here, and then we'll get back to it. Uh, frankly, I think it's all horseshit myself, right, in that uh, it was uh, game A that ended slavery, right? Uh, keep in mind, the Brits abolished the slave trade and worked actively to produce abolition across the world starting in 1808, right, long time ago. Uh, and uh, th that was unprecedented in human history. And I would say that it was uh, uh, an emergent uh, effect of the ability to replace human labor, which could then be commoditized as slaves or indentured servants, uh, with machines, right? And that allowed the moral distinction to be arise. Because unfortunately, I forget who said it, uh, but, you know, uh, morality is tightly closed with how people make a living. And if you don't have uh, an alternative to some behavior which you otherwise would think reprehensible, you're going to continue to do it. Uh, and once, uh, you know, fossil fuels and uh, steam power became an obvious way to uh, replace slavery, uh, the moral, the, the, the few people who had the moral awakening that slavery was an abomination uh, were able to gradually convince other people. And fairly, you know, the U.S. almost outlawed slavery in the Constitution. Uh, there, uh, all the founding fathers knew it was a moral abomination, but the Southerners 
uh, it was still a necessity because remember we did not have steam power in the United States in 1787 when we were negotiating the Constitution. And so a corrupt deal was done to preserve slavery uh, until also interestingly, uh, 1808, where the slave trade in the United States was abolished, uh, the founding fathers were kind of smart. They said, all right, we'll allow it for 20 more years and then it will end. So anyway, I think that the uh, this, this slavery narrative about uh, uh, the emergence of the Industrial Revolution and game A is actually a canard and a, and a bad attractor and a waste of time. Uh, and in, in reality, it, it was the amazing accomplishment of Game A to have abolished slavery relatively quickly once it started uh, started rolling. Uh, and I think it's a really bad, stupid thing in our current politics for people to wallow in this stuff. Um, in fact, if you've listened to me, you know my general theory is don't wallow in anything. God damn it, move forward. The past is the past. That's why we call it the past. God damn it. Uh, and as we talked about it earlier, uh, we should look at the past for lessons that can be used in the future, right? So let's look at, uh, you know, the Mennonites and how they uh, deal objectively with uh, technology within their own context. Let's look at the Israeli kibbutz and what worked and what didn't work. Uh, but wallowing in uh, a false narrative, a mostly false narrative uh, about uh, things like, uh, you know, slavery over almost 200 years ago strikes me as a very bad uh, uh, distraction away from crafting what comes next. And I'll confess that's uh, my, my perspective and not one that, that everybody agrees with. But Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's sort of wisdom in what you're saying. I, I also think, you know, I, I think I would sort of stand, you know, pretty close to where Joe Brewer would stand on this uh, around, you, you know, there, there sort of does need to be a process to metabolize, you, you know, history may not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes, you know, as Mark Twain said, and it, it will tend to, the, the attractors of the past will tend to draw people back into them and recapitulate bad systems through cultural like sort of subconscious cultural patterns that i think have to do with sort of the psychosocial cultural element and how we hold and engage with you know what may be in quotes referred to as collective trauma stuff so it's sort of like wallowing in it i completely agree is not useful but you know how like actually leaning into and engaging it in a way that can provide insight, I think is important, sort of like the difference between, you know, PTSD and, and you know, PTSO or post-traumatic stress ordering, you know, where, where it actually serves as, as something that can bump us up to another order of operations. And instead of sort of hysteresis versus homeostasis. So I, I think like it's like, it's like, yes, everything you're saying is true. And there is something there that, um, anyway, that I think is that it's important and slippery. And, you know, if you, you, you can, it's, it's full of hazard, certainly. Yeah, it is, though I, my own view is that uh, uh, in, especially, you know, campus uh, bound, uh, thinking these days is insanely uh, far draw drawn to that attractor of wallowing. I and agreed. I mean, I totally agree, and it's and it's 
crazy. I mean, I mean, there's you'll get no argument from me on that end. <laughs> well, okay, anyway, let's let's move on. Let's, let's move on. Yeah, yeah. So so game so, A pulls game, people. Game A. So you're sort of talking us through this narrative. Game A is is sort of lifting up, you know, humanity, but it has a certain set of rules that you know market driven rules that people are engaging with that determine success, etc. And that's okay. about where we did took this detour. Yeah. yeah. So we're you know we're we're gonna getting it up to like 1870, and then you know the next the third industrial revolution where we start getting internal combustion engines, and then the the huge leap uh, of electricity, uh, which really didn't become you know, ubiquitous until later than a lot of people today think. This farm I'm sitting in, for instance, didn't get electricity till 1962, 1962. Mm -hmm. My mother grew up in a house without electricity, without indoor plumbing, without central heat uh, in the wilds of Northern Minnesota. Uh, so the full electrification of the West, and this is we're talking about the United States is, is later than we think, but it was starting to happen in the urban worlds uh, at the turn of the century slowly, but not really until about 1920. So that's the next uh, industrial revolution. But back to the point, uh, the, th the, en the engine, the generator functions that's driving this is in my mind, I tend to hyper simplify this, uh, is that there is one uh, cycle at the center that it drove game A, and that is the pursuit of money on money return. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in particular, uh, particularly since I uh, say 1970, short-term money on money return uh, is the function that drives everything else. Yeah, very short-term, right? Quarterly at that point. Well, yeah, not quite. I mean, I was a corporate CEO of a publicly traded company and I gave my quarterly uh, uh, talks to investors and all this stuff. And I was a C-level executive at a major multinational. And we didn't really manage our companies quarterly, but I would say that uh, our vision was no more than three years out. Uh, and three years is way too short to be uh, you know, playing with the important parts of, uh, of social infrastructure. Uh, so the engine forces ultra short-term thinking. Unfortunately, this also is a good story about Game A. Game A did huge amounts of good for the world, did some bad things along the way, as, uh, uh, as every uh, uh, transformation does. Uh, people forget that after the uh, American Revolution, a relatively benign revolution, uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans were driven out of America and into Canada. Uh, something like a third of Canadians can uh, trace their ancestry to, uh, uh, you know, essentially uh, ethnic cleansing that occurred between the Tories and the Patriots at the end of the uh, of the American Revolution. Very few yeah. people know about that. But anyway, um, because this thing is built around this generator, uh, it has no brakes, right? Uh, it, it, and our politics is still full of this. Uh, you know, how many people talk about economic growth as if it's an unbridled good? Essentially, every goddamn politician. Well, right, uh, and and there's so many thinkers out there. Yeah, it's there's it is so ingrained that. Th that myth, that generator function of, you know, economic growth, money on money return is, you know, I, I hear this, it's sort of like uh, the, the archetype of this story to me is actually, you know, essentially it's Peter Thiel, who, who I've heard him say in, in a podcast, etc., uh, you know, some things which I think are kind of crazy and problematic, but they have their, their, they have their internal logic and it's essentially the story of peace is brought about as long as the pie that's being sliced up is getting bigger and bigger every year. And that's the only thing that we should care about. Not how big the slices are that are getting distributed, but just how big the pie is. 
Yeah, and that argument, uh, one couldn't can make that argument. In fact, you can even make it from a Rawlsian social justice perspective. However, what that what that perspective uh, gets wrong is the pie keep can't keep on growing. God damn it, Peter yeah. Peel, uh, who I know slightly. There's uh, limits. There's limits to growth. It turns out <laughs> that is that's the key. That's the key. So, like, if uh, let's say if the Earth were a hundred times bigger than it is, right? Uh, then we could run game A for quite a while longer. But by every reasonable measure of people who looked at this seriously, we're already over. We, uh, the, we're, we overshot. Yeah. We overshot. And Joe Brewer is brilliant at talking about this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would you know, encourage people to look into Joe and the work that he's doing. Uh, and there's some arguments about how much we've overshot and what the real carrying capacity of the, of the earth is, et cetera. Uh, but certainly I will, I will say un almost without any reservation, that the idea of 10 billion humans, which is where we're looking to be at the end of the 21st century, uh, living a lifestyle equivalent to the current American one would, un would produce more or less instant disaster on a worldwide basis. And we may uh, not even be able to make it that far. I don't think we will. Uh, yeah. and, the th and, the, and the boundaries are several. You know, uh, the climate is the most famous one. Uh, and if, if the other ones don't get us, climate will get us, right? Uh, and some climate as a, you know, I always like to, climate has become sort of like the catch-all for the, the larger degradation of, of the biosphere and, you know, um, cr the risk of, sort of negative entropic hysteresis taking place at the biosphere level. Uh, you know, climate is just one thing. There's a lot, there, whatever it is, ozone toxicity, <laughs> there's, there's this yeah, converging, yeah. It's a metacrisis, right? I was yeah. going to go into those, right? Because and, and climate is the one that's the hammer that'll get us if the others don't. So that, and it's also a terrible fit uh, for human cognition. Uh, in fact, let's look yeah. at a little sidebar in human cognition, an area I've spent a lot of time studying uh, since actually the original Game B 1.0 ended. I spent uh, uh, three years doing a deep dive into cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, 2014 to 2017. And uh, Game A is a great fit for human cognition. Short-term money-on-money return. Uh, that actually is not too different than the skills necessary to be a primitive farmer, right? You think about three years out at the most, uh, and most of your effort is focused on this year. Uh, uh, but climate, uh, oh my God, right? You know, Long tail exponential complex systems thinking is not really very possible for most individuals without some sort of computer aid. Yeah, and without collective sense making, essentially. And uh, so, uh, you know, so climate is the hammer. Uh, and, and unfortunately, we have to start fixing it soon before the effects are even hardly noticeable. Though I can already notice them at my farm. There's been a shift in the growing season. Uh, uh, one, one species of tree has been wiped out because it gets warmer earlier. But the Yeah, we needed to fix this back in the 70s when the, when the Exxon-funded scientists first started passing around internal memos to, you know, within Exxon and other, and Chevron and other oil and gas <laughs> <laughs> yep, companies exactly. th that they needed to at that moment shift out of their you know three-year cycle of profit and into you know a, a social stewardship stance and they didn't and it's understandable why they didn't yeah of course given not. the they're, cultural context yeah still driven by short-term money on money return but the other one let's go talk a little bit about some of the other ones one is the uh uh uh, you know, the, the, call it the, what the, the fifth great extinction, right? We're wiping yep. out species at a rapid rate. Yep. Uh, and 
some of that I think is, is a moral and aesthetic question, right? Yep. It, it bothers me that we don't have wolves here in the East anymore or elk or bison, Amen. right? Yeah, uh, and I saw, uh, I posted on uh, my Facebook feed uh, in the last week or so, uh, humans now outweigh all wild mammals on earth by about yeah. 10 to I saw, 1. I saw, I saw, I saw that meme as well. Yeah. Right? And, then, and our domestic animals outweigh us by about 50%. So in between the humans and uh, our, our domestic animals, we outweigh wild mammals uh, by, you know, like 30 to 1. I mean, that's really bad. Uh, though perhaps the most dangerous ones are what we're doing to insect life. Yeah. Uh, you know, people who, who have not farmed or don't know that much about agriculture uh, don't understand how remar remarkably dependent we are on pollinators, right? Many kinds of bees and not just honeybees. You know, we have, I don't know, 20 different bees here that live on our farm, bees and wasps, and they're all involved in the uh, pollination cycle. Uh, but if you're involved in industrial uh, agriculture, you know, using heavy duty herbicides and pesticides constantly year after year, you're gonna be killing off uh, your pollinators. Then you gotta hire people to bring beehives in it. And now the bees are starting, the honeybees are starting to die. So uh, it's quite possible we could stumble into an agricultural collapse due to uh, unintentional side effects of our agricultural, our industrial agricultural processes. And then how, this is where it gets really interesting. Uh, the other, uh, now the, then the final thing is what are we doing to our episteme epistemological commons, right? Our ability yeah. to actually make sense. And, uh, you know, one could argue since about 1975, 1980, that's been going downhill slowly uh, uh, through mass media and, Etc. But I think uh, you're right there that the, episto the epistemology is the the great nodal intervention. How how we know how how do people know? And in general, people have collapsed into it, it collapsed into and inherited sort of the habitual. You know, I know because someone told me. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the person that told them might well be an idiot. Exactly. Well, is, is getting dumber and dumber, like the institution, the, the places where we trust, you know, just like looking at WHO and CDC and how they responded as the people who tell you what you need to know about things like first, you don't wear masks, then you do, and then this and then that. And they're, <laughs> they're just sort of, you know, like wobbling all over the street like a drunkard, essentially. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. And then I would say there was a uh, a phase change that occurred around 2010 uh, towards the worse, even worse, uh, which was when we start when almost everybody started, or not everybody, but a growing number of people, particularly in the West and now pretty much worldwide, started carrying around supercomputers in their pocket, yep. uh, connected connected to the internet, and then around the same time, uh, this the 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 this. Uh, third generation social media networks like Facebook and Twitter started to become significant. Yep. And we, you know, again, this was all driven by short term money on money return. I mean, literally. Surveillance capitalism is born. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Google went public a few years before that. And uh, so essentially, uh, you know, this is hyper short term money on money return. These things have billions of dollars worth of machine learning in the background, looking at every click. And even if you don't click, they now can actually see where your mouse is. How about that? Auctioning uh, off behavior patterns. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, they, they know if you've got, if you're about to, be diagnosed with Parkinson's before you do. They can sell that information to the insurance company so you don't get insured. They know, yeah, so it's, um, it's, yep, it's, and that rips 
we see the consequences of that. The, the most obvious consequences of that are, you know, the ways that that's fragmented our sense making in <coughs> relationship to elections and other things. But I think the the implications are much deeper than most people are willing to talk about. And it gets all the way down to that epistemological root that you're talking about. Yeah. And, and interestingly, I was involved in the building of these nets. I worked for the, went to work as a young fellow for the very first consumer online service called The Source. Uh, it started in 1979. I went to work for them in 1980. And believe it or not, 1980, and certainly by 1981, uh, we had online available uh, most of what's on the web today. We had uh, we had newswire, stock prices, uh, bulletin board forums. Uh, we had chat. We had email. Uh, and by 1982, early 82, we even had an early precursor of social media. Uh, but, and this is where it's quite interesting, uh, in those days, these were all paid for services, and, yeah. they, were, and they were really expensive. Uh, it took a, it was a hundred dollar initiation fee, uh, plus about ten dollars an hour, and that was in nineteen let's call it eighty two dollars, which would be the equivalent of about twenty five dollars an hour now, at least twenty. Yep. And, and when there was no advertising, uh, because frankly, the economic density of those kinds of subscription models was way higher than advertising. Yeah. Uh, and also the cost to provide the service in those days of expensive computers was way higher. And so we didn't have any of this real crazy badness. And we thought, in fact, that we were doing uh, good for the world, that this should be a great boon for citizenship. And I believe indeed it was uh, until the emergence of the advertising driven model uh, that really started getting stronger in the late 90s and then accelerated in the double aughts and then exploded around 2010. Which there's uh, a, you know, the, as you're, as you're narrating here, I'm, I'm having the thought, you know, which I'm completely not attached to, but I'm having the thought of the, the analogy between, you know, the human behavior as the fuel of surveillance capitalism in, in, in that industrial revolution cycle and, you know, petroleum and coal, fossil fuels as the fuel of the, you know, second or third industrial, I guess it's the third industrial revolution. Um, and the, the costs, the externalized costs of, of that third industrial revolution we're dealing with with climate change and the externalized costs uh, of, you know, epistemological failure and failure of sense making, we're, are, we're seeing in a shorter time frame in a shorter cycle, but is likely of similar magnitude in terms of existential threat. I agree. In fact, in, in maybe even in way shorter terms. I mean, just think about the fucking crazy shit floating around about COVID-19, right? Uh, you know, think about crazy shit like QAnon, right? There's, uh, you know, we had no idea what we were creating when we created Facebook. It was just driven by short-term money, money, money on money return, and the fact that uh, Zuckerberg is a very peculiar character. I recently did a uh, uh, pod, full in-depth podcast with Stephen uh, Levy, who wrote a recent book about Facebook, where he had un, uh, unprecedented access to uh, Zuckerberg and uh, who's the COO, anyway, all the leading folks there. And one of the things uh, that popped Cheryl out... Cheryl Sandberg. Sandberg, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, one of the things that popped out of that, which I had no idea, is it turned out turns out that Zuckerberg is a huge, ridiculous fan of uh, Augustus Caesar. Yeah, no doubt. And he, he even rocks the haircut. 
<laughs> exactly. I said he looked. He, he's modeling himself. In fact, the, one of the stories I found most eerie was that his wife complains miserably about their honeymoon because they went to Italy and he spent all of his time visiting all the si uh, sites of Octavian and Augustus Caesar. Octavian was his name before he became Caesar. Yep. And, and I go, God damn, the, the last person on earth I want to be controlling uh, the epistemic discourse is the guy who models himself on the person who perverted the Roman em uh, Republic and turned it into the Roman Empire. Holy but just, shit. You know, if, if we're in the mythopoetic for just a moment, it is such a close fit to the, the archetype of the, like, the, the game A winner of yeah. what you shape yourself into if within societal constraints, you know, winning the, the, the game of business is you know, the strategy of that is your primary goal as a young person. And you, you mold your habits, you mold your sense making, you, you mold yourself to succeed in that, you know, I, I mean, that, that's, that's what we get, right. And, and so circling back around, it seems like, you know, the invitation in the game B movement uh, explicitly is to, to consider what do we hold up as the sort of archetypes that we're striving to become culturally, socially, economically, like, and, and how do we create, I, go, I don't know, I sort of refer to this as nested competition, where, where, where competing to, to, to be all you can be and to strive and have entrepreneurial drive, we're not just sort of like throwing that out with, you know, throwing, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but we're, we're trying to sort of, you know, um, um, create healthy boundaries around where we choose to compete and, and, and kind of enculturate those is my understanding about how the conversation happens in the Game B movement. Yeah, and well, let me jump ahead, then I'll come back a little bit to more of the Game B story. This is one that uh, is absolutely critical. I've now uh, come to the view of, I always knew it was important, but I now decided it's damn close to the core. Yeah. Why do we play? is yeah. the most important question. And in game A, uh, especially since World War II uh, and accelerating since 1975, uh, we play to acquire uh, status via goods, right? Uh, by acquiring goods, you know, why do we have this chain of cars from an entry level Kia to a, you know, a million dollar Lamborghini or some fucking thing? It's because we have been programmed uh, to show our status through the shit that we buy or positional goods, right? Positional good being a fancy house on the Hamptons. The only reason it's, it's worth $25 million is because I can have it, you can't, right? And it becomes a symbol of my wonderfulness that I have a house on the Hamptons. And so, uh, one of the, the I, I now believe close to the, the key first thing that has to be achieved in uh, building a new social operating system is that we have to sincerely deprogram ourselves, which will not be easy, uh, from status through things and positional goods, and rather uh, have a new status hierarchy around things like uh, self-actualization. How cultivated are we as a person? What skills have we added to our skill kit? Uh, you know, a person who's an astoundingly good maker of uh, artisanal uh, furniture, for instance, uh, that will last uh, 500 years and be passed down family to family, ought to have more status uh, in game B uh, than, uh, you know, a quant jock who figures out how to make a uh, 
uh, short-term trading algorithm produce 0.01% greater profit per trade. Uh, while today, uh, you know, the quant jock probably has a uh, $10 million house in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, and the artisanal uh, furniture maker, uh, it's probably just barely holding it together. Uh, yeah, and, that, and the main driver of that is, is uh, you know, sex, essentially. Yeah. Well, and was, so in order to convert that, we're, we're going to have to essentially capture mainstream media and or, you know, sort of like, like flip that whole advertising apparatus on its head, which is currently holding people in this like strange behavioral, you know, like headlock around how, what we select for in terms of our mate preferences and sexuality and all of that stuff is just so it's been so crammed into consumerism and and you know mtv style status that yeah, that's absolutely. to me I, I mean i would totally agree in heated agreement that 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 intervention and flipping that so that you know the the archetype of the sort of on both sides of you know g gender and the full spectrum of gender that the, the mates we choose to invest our energy into to, to you know bear children or just have fun or whatever it is that, like where partnership is taking place needs to shift to those who are um, truly benefiting the health of society ecological commons etc and and what that means i, I in heated agreement couldn't agree more. And uh, this is where we have the high-low uh, aspects of game B. Uh, yes, it would be great. If you made me dictator of the world, damn good idea, he says. Not really. But the first thing I do is fucking outlaw advertising online, period, right? Uh, advertising online is exponentially worse than advertising on TV, which is exponentially worse than advertising in the newspaper. So yeah. I just start by killing off the worst weeds on the farm, right? The worst weeds on the farm are advertising online. Just say day one, it's fucking illegal. It's a felony. Just can't do it. Sorry. Uh, but that's not going to happen anytime no. soon. Uh, no. So now, this is where we get back to the story of game, of game B as opposed to the Emancipation Party. The Emancipation Party, if it got into power, would actually do that, right? Uh, but uh, uh, we realized that if we are going to ever get there, it'd be a long way away. So instead, let's take the tools they gave us. You know, as Lenin said, when it comes time to hang the capitalists, they will sell us the rope to do so. Right. And so, again, this is Jordan's great insight, which resonated with a bunch of us. We all got, went, yay, yay, which is hmm, these online tools, uh, much like our naive vision in 1980 or 81, uh, can actually be used to undermine game. A. Yeah, uh, we can. This is where the sort of parasitize game A in order to fuel game B initiatives comes in. Yes, well, for, not quite yet. First, let's use their infrastructure that they're using to program us to status uh, through possessions and to feed the fire of short-term money on money return uh, to build a counter-narrative within the same framework. So, for Okay, instance, so step one is meme warfare on their terms. Well, uh, some meme warfare on their terms and find the others and let the others find each other, right? Mm -hmm. And so Game B 2.0, which kind of got started in its nascent stage with the publication in February 2017 of Jordan Hall's Situational Awareness 2017 and the creation of the Rally Point Alpha Facebook group, uh, 
uh, was, hey, people, uh, there is actually the ability to use these tools. They're already being used. He pointed this out by uh, insurgents of various sorts uh, to organize. And in fact, uh, you know, part of his point was that uh, what allowed Trump to win against the forces of what he calls the blue church, I think call it, uh, you know, uh, liberal orthodoxy, uh, was the, the fact that the red religion, as he called it, uh, self-organized on the nets much more rapidly and capably uh, than the blue church who were kind of naively uh, resting on the laurels of the fact that they controlled mainstream media. And so, uh, we all said, hmm, this is very true and good, and let's use this to now revive the ideas behind game B, because uh, I, oh, I should go, just if you want the history part, well, I'm not gonna go to the history, I've talked about it online elsewhere. Uh, we'll soon, I'll soon be writing an essay on it. But anyway, so let's, we start uh, game B 2.0, let's say the, in the earliest stages in February, 2017, it starts to accelerate. Uh, we start to re actually brand it uh, game B again in the spring of 2019. Uh, and since then, it's been growing at an exponential rate that's pretty staggering. Uh, yeah, then that must have been about when I started to see it pop up uh, again in my world. Uh, yeah, yeah it, never, it never fully went away, but it went to what we called spore mode, uh, where we all were doing our own things, but we knew in the future uh, the soil conditions would be better, and uh, and so they are. And so, so anyway, get back to what is Game B in its current incarnation. I, I basically describe there's a long road to Game B and there's a short road to Game B. And the long road, which I laid out in an essay called A Journey to Game B, uh, is that we work initially on ourselves to make sure that we are actually ready to be Game B players uh, in things like sovereignty, which is in short term, being able to act as a, a stable-minded adult in all dimensions uh, and coherence, the ability to work with other sovereign people to do things together without ego getting in the way and gamesmanship and game theory playing and those kinds of things. Uh, that we may also need to use some psychotechnologies to get us to coherence and sovereignty. Uh, you know, some people have lots, we all have malware from game A, right? Uh, you know, just get, trying to get rid of the status through things thing, you know, uh, you know, you walk by a shiny Mercedes and you go, God damn, I'd love to have one of those, right? You go, that's fucking stupid asshole. Uh, and so psychotechnologies like contemplative practice, uh, you know, electronic biofeedback, nootropics, psychedelics, uh, even conventional medical psychotherapy could be helpful for some people uh, are, are going to be part of this uh, getting ready. And then once there's a first cadre of people ready, call it 50 people, 20 people, something like that. Uh, we talk about them forming a proto-B, which is a group of people that choose to live together in some sense, whether they actually live in a physically same place or uh, they at least need to live in the same town or region where they can get together and have dinner a few times a week, et cetera. Uh, you can think of them as kind of like a Mennonite parish, right, at one end or a hippie community at the other. Uh, and, and frankly, I'm wide open to where, and one of the things I do lay out in this is that we should be very empirical and that the proto-bees should not be built to the same template. Uh, people should be able to set whatever settings they want for their local conditions and their own personal temperaments, uh, but there should be horizontal uh, communication between the proto-bees as we share what works uh, and doesn't work. Uh, so first we have the initial proto-bees, uh, which can build up to 
Dunbar level, about 150. And then uh, it could be still in the same proto-B family, but it would then spawn additional Dunbar level cells that are still using the same proto-B operating system. Uh, and then, you know, again, sharing and trading and maybe even building an economy with the other proto-Bs that gradually, gradually withdraws our level of uh, 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 dealing with game A. Uh, but then back, let's, uh, game A parasitism. Again, this was literally talked about the first weekend uh, of the uh, face-to-face -face meetings that we did, the series of five face-to-face -face meetings that created the Emancipation Party and game B. Um, and it, uh, the idea of parasitism of game A uh, became very critical. And frank frankly, it was one of the things that convinced me the whole idea was possible. Uh, you know, a small insurgent group of people called game B, uh, you know, let's say currently maybe it's 10,000 worldwide that have even heard of the term game B or at least have any uh, serious payload associated with it uh, versus, you know, 7 billion people. Uh, doesn't look like good odds, right? But if you think, if you add in the idea of parasitism of game A, suddenly uh, the uh, uh, virtuous circle looks like it might be possible. So the idea is that if you had a group of people who are in are able to act as sovereign persons, uh, which is most of us are not able to be sovereign today, uh, and can act together in coherence to do uh, productive work and otherwise just have fun. Conviviality is a huge important part of Game B. And I uh, hope and believe that conviviality will replace partially status through things. Uh, then we ought to actually be able to turn that around and outcompete uh, aspects of Game A and essentially suck the energy uh, economic and literal energy out of game A into building more game B. Because uh, again, while there are some people who can make the fundamental shift from a game A mindset to a game B mindset by themselves, those people are rare, to tell you the truth. Most people respond to the social systems around them and the social signals they receive. So they're much more likely to move to a game B mindset if, for instance, there's a good job waiting for them there uh, where they can, you know, make a living and support their family and have uh, good housing and education for their children. Right. And the beautiful thing there is if you if you are successfully shifting out of the status through goods, um, you can offer. I've long thought it's possible to build um, enterprise ecosystems is how I've always talked about it, but, but, you know, sort of little, I don't know, guilds of businesses that can offer a pretty wide variety of, of jobs at relatively low wages in terms of sort of fiat currency, US dollars or whatever it is, but extraordinarily high quality of life. Absolutely. Within that's... the community. And, and that's where the efficiencies happen. And that's where I think, because that increases meaning it increases fulfillment, it increases quality of life in, in a real authentic way that you don't have to go purchase. And so to the degree to which, and I think that's, uh, my guess is that resonates very strongly with, with how you're using and inviting consideration around conviviality. Exactly. And not just conviviality, the other one that you talked about, family, right? Yeah. Uh, you talk to particularly millennials uh, uh, and the younger boom, uh, younger Xers, uh, you know, the pressures on the family today and the bad influences on child rearing are horrendous. Oh, it's very hard. I mean, I have a young, I, I have a, um, a three-year-old and a, and a one-year-old. Um, 
and you know, yeah, sort of. Um, I've also been very strict my uh, my adult life to never engage in what I what, what I've always termed the extractive economy, which I think is is pretty uh, pretty close analog to the sort of game A piece. But but at the on the other other end of that, there aren't really you know if you get sort of in, in enmeshed in oh here here comes my little guy right now hi <laughs> oh really oh that's exciting hey what's your name that's that's obrin hey obrin i'm the voice behind the computer <laughs> yeah he just ran out the door he he is uh potty training today oh so, uh, okay. we're we're in the midst of that um um, so where I was going to go with that is, you know, options available to us. I, I spent a lot of my life, um, right after, you know, going to college and getting my undergraduate degree, I basically went straight into sort of the eco village intentional community kind of permaculture nexus, uh, because it felt like that was the, you know, I, I sort of. I was I was on this ship on this brainwave on this deep signal that we've been exploring, you know, for quite a while uh, as a very young person actually, and that seemed like the next logical place if I was going to go explore this sort of this intersection and see if it was actually working and sort of throw my shoulder in and try to do something that felt meaningful to me. And I have to say that that, that by and large, although I don't I don't want to make blanket statements, the the intentional community and eco village movement didn't actually like there was sort of too much conflation and not enough sovereignty around how people chose to sort of like, you know, live in community and not enough focus on the work that needed to get done for me. You know, I'm a little bit more of a, I guess, classical type A personality. And I want to be with a group of people who want to, you know, get some shit done and have fun and, you know, have really solid social relationships. So you know, that, that just, I, and I, I guess I'm explaining this because I don't think that my experience in a sort of subjective sense is rare. I think that there's a common experience of yearning, which you're sort of also pointing to around people who are right at the cusp of having families or have young families needing um, support, conviviality, um, mutual aid, um, but the, it's just like it's not quite it's very it's not easy to create and in, and either you oscillate too far to one side and you pour your energy into some sort of you know um intentional community that sort of implodes after a little while or or you just sort of keep trying as an atomized you know nuclear family nuclear family family you just keep kind of doing your thing and and that has a high cost so yeah i love that i love that that's a, a very good distinction and i would say game b is an attempt to straddle that right yeah uh, i'm like you i got no use for hippies and mud huts so maybe you did at one point i never did right i love hippies and mud huts but but i don't necessarily i, I mean i i would love to live in a mud hut uh i car building all that stuff i mean i love it but i um and just as a background i spent I actually spent two years uh, living on the farm in Tennessee, running their Eco Village Training Center, and uh, convening uh, the 2008 Bioregional Congress. And you know, you know, I sort of think of it as I, I really loved Hansi's invitation to consider the three H's: the hippies, the hipsters, 
and uh, and the hackers. And you know, I think if you get the right mix of those without going too far into sort of the mystical thinking and, and other elements, you you can create a very healthy. Um, yeah, a sort of healthy orientation to reality. But but I also, you know, obviously I, I live alone in my own house with my, you know, wife and kids. And, you know, I work uh, remotely on a business that I founded. I'm not in an intentional community. And, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> and uh, and on the other hand, as you are found, uh, doing it on your own is hugely difficult. No, it's, it's where I'm, I'm stressed I, I I'm suboptimal in in how I show up both for family and work due yeah, and, to due to the the stress of that for sure. And so the 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 idea of game B is to build these uh, at least the long road to game B and uh, part of the short road as well is to build these proto Bs uh, where groups of people uh, can pool their resources, uh, time, maybe space, uh, probably money to some degree. Again, they'll have to work that out. The uh, history of the Israeli kibbutzes is actually very informative on that. There's some great examples also of, of even contemporary um, sort of income sharing schemes yeah, that yeah. people can calibrate. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of actually uh, really fantastic resources out there. They're just, uh, they're not necessarily compiled in, in, um, in a modular format that people can, you know, pick, go through a little bit of a community process, choose what they want to do, experiment and upgrade quite yet, but it feels like we're getting very close. Yeah, we could do that now. Uh, you know, yeah. again, if, uh, if, uh, 20 families got together and said they wanted to start a proto B on January 1st, 2021. Uh, the, uh, they could go do the research. Uh, they could get some help from somebody like uh, uh, Rich Bartlett to think about their constitution. Uh, they could well, get- I, I would actually argue that it's, it's not even, I mean, maybe within the B, game B, sort of like, like strict sphere, maybe that hasn't quite happened yet, but because I sort of come from the eco village intentional community permaculture, or at least having done a psych, a tour, <laughs> a right, tour of, right, a tour right. of du duty through that community. I have to say there are many, 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 there are thousands of examples of somewhere between five and even 50 families having gone through cycles. And, and then, and, and there is actually a great body of work around what's been learned and what's available. You know, I think rich, rich Bartlett, has done good work. Diana Leaf Christian has has really, you know, some pretty solid work around that. And um, you know, Daniel Christian Wall and the, sort of the Eco Village um, Gen Global Eco Village Network. There, there is actually like quite a rich body of work, and I'm seeing that intersect with sort of uh, computer aided governance. And, yes. And, and DAOs and you know Aragon and DAO Stack and um, th there's a really, I mean, it's it's very exciting. There's been an explosion in proliferation and, um, and highly competent people, which is different from when I was sort of in this world. I was in that world sort of just before the explosion of, you know, supercomputers in your pocket. <laughs> gotcha. Right? Right. I, I, I was um, 2000, 2006, 2005 through, you know, right around 2010. I was sort of just, you know, uh, teaching and practicing permaculture, teaching and practicing um, different styles of decision-making, community governance, you know, the things. There's, there's a long, there's actually an enormous, there's a whole machine, machinery there of people that I feel like um, needs to be appropriately um, researched and, and high-graded from. 
not, oh, that'd be great. To, not to adopt everything, but I think there's enormous opportunity to learn that. Yeah, if you could post some uh, links to that on the Game B uh, Facebook group, that'd be hugely helpful because I think we're in a uh, looking back mode a little bit right now, looking for tools, techniques, and people uh, that we can, you know, uh, basically play the blender game to come up with the, uh, the, uh, the prototypes of the first proto bees. Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll maybe even one up from that. I, I'll do my best to do that, but I'll also maybe, you know, maybe you and I could brainstorm a little bit. I'd be happy to um, both, you know, recommend some folks for you to talk to, but also just start hosting some of these folks that from back in my past, I developed relationships with who were teaching, etc. And, you know, maybe we can, you know, do a little bit of a mix of posting some resources, but also getting like, you know, just rehydrating a little bit because I, I think like it. I like it. Well, let me conversations are really important here to get the depth, the, the contextual depth of things. I like this a lot. I'm going to ponder this. Uh, there may actually be an intentional pulling together of voices. Yeah. Uh, who have lived experience, some of it failed, some of the failures. Well, were and that's the most valuable in a way. I was right? going to say, I'll tell you what, I can tell you I learned more from my failures than I did from my successes in my life, and I've had a fair number of both. But let's get back to the philosophy of Game B here. So we have the, the sense uh, that these networks, uh, while on one level poisonous, are also enabling. And so, yes. uh, you know, we've pulled together uh, what I would say are four pillars of what a Game B early game B world at least looks like first and foremost uh, and this is what distinguishes us from most uh, such movements in the past self-organizing there if you'll notice there is no game B organization there's no legal entity called game B right uh, and we want to keep it that way yeah uh, that anyone any group of people that want to start taking the bits and pieces of game beatdom that float around the world and start doing it can do so uh, for instance a uh, uh, an experiment we ran starting about three months ago turned out to be a huge success. We had this one Game B group on Facebook with thousands of members, way too much traffic to get into anything in depth. Uh, so we suggested that people uh, start fanning out and creating working groups on Facebook uh, focused on specific uh, underlying domains, like there's a parenting group, there's an education group, there's an upgrading sovereignty group, there's a building communities group. Uh, there's an uh, there's a tools for governance group, which uh, I think is hugely important, as you mentioned. Uh, wouldn't it be great if there was a, a, a customizable toolkit for governance for an intentional community? And, oh, by the way, for its interconnection to its sister and brother communities around the world. Uh, we believe that will emerge out of this group at some point. So self-organizing. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and again, there is nobody in charge. Anyone can start one of these groups. Uh, it, it should be network centric in that uh, the networks substantially reduce the cost of coordinating. Yes. Uh, tremendously, but they have to be used correctly and not be poisoned by advertising. Well, just a, just a quick detour there, Jim, I'd be curious to hear, I've been, you know, I'm in the uh, sort of web three decentralized technology space pretty heavily right now. And one of the things I, I see people continuously try to sort of take a run at these networks. Oh, we're going to do decentralized Twitter. We're going to do decentralized Facebook, this, that, and the other. To me, it feels much more likely to be able to create kind of software that plugs in to these networks and gives you the ability to, and th th already some of this exists, gives you the ability to, you know, see if something has a high likelihood of being, you know, 
sort of bot-driven fake, fake news and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, it actually feels like we can build sovereignty um, from individuals and groups that are engaging with these platforms without actually having to ask these platforms to change their model or compete directly with them at all. I think that's an open question. Uh, I will say, again, I've been doing this building online systems for communities of one sort or another since 1980. So I've got a lot of experience, a lot of thinking about this. And I have to say, I have been generally skeptical on the distributed web uh, in that I know that you, you make doing simple things really hard when you go to distributed. You know, oh, totally. Or, it's taken us, I mean, it's taken us and and we have a constant i mean we're <laughs> we have we have a lot of conversation about this it's taken us 2 years to get to our minimum viable you know <laughs> function instead of 2 months yeah, if you were exactly. doing a, a web based app and the cost of that is quite high um you know i mean there being a whole topic of conversation i actually wanted to pick your brain about you know, your thoughts. I, I remember in one of your podcasts, you'd said that you were going to, you know, teach, learn a little bit of Rust and dig into Holochain. Um, I know Art and, and um, um, uh, Harris Braun. Um, anyway, I'm blanking on, um, on his name. Apologies for that. But, you know, we've, we've, we've pretty thoroughly vetted Holochain and decided to go different direction. Um, but I'd be interested at some point in just like picking your brain about, you know, I know you just did an interview. I know you sort of dug in a little bit. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. So, I mean, I agree. It's very complex. I, I don't know that the investment needed to make it work is worth it in the present day. I do think that it's an imperative in the midterm. Um, yes, maybe. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm just an utter pragmatist on this, right? Because I have the, adv the advantage of both having been a, a literal designer of these tools and an entrepreneurial business dude uh, who can think in terms of uh, things that start small and get big. And uh, I would also uh, pat myself on the back and say I'm a classic empiricist, right? Uh, don't get overcaught up in theory. Uh, let's see what fucking works, right? <laughs> and so I don't know, you know, uh, back to Holochain itself, I had a very good talk with uh, Art Brock, Brock, which will be coming up in the next week or two on my show. Uh, and I still have a dedicated June and July uh, to build a Holochain app. Uh, I have learned enough Rust and WebAssembly to do that. Uh, I must say, I am still not at all uh, sure that the ecosystem is at a level where uh, using it for something for production for you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people is really appropriate, but I'll find out. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so one should, uh, and, and again, I- uh, how many Well, I'm times very glad that they're doing WebAssembly and Rust are, just as a brief detour, you know, we have a, a WASM-based um, sort of smart contracting framework. And, um, you know, so it's, there may be, I'm, I'm excited that there may actually be convergent choices and, What's interesting is I think there's there's a lot of work getting poured into and, and I think we're actually picking up pace in terms of, you know, developer UX to to get there, to get to the place where you can actually, you, you know, like those of us who are working on this space right now, I, I think are cutting the cost of uh, doing business in this way by a couple of orders of magnitude right now. Um, so that's, 
you know, that, anyway, a conversation perhaps for another time. Yeah, we can go into that in some other depth. Uh, and, but, you know, the, where, where, the, where the hell were we here? Yeah, the, the idea that uh, network centricity is part of it, but it means we have to build new tools. Uh, we actually tried to build a Game B online service in uh, the 2013. Uh, we, uh, this was back in the days when Reddit source code was uh, open source, amazingly. So we actually took a fork of Reddit, added a whole bunch of new features, made it a lot prettier looking, easier to use, uh, and uh, launched something called LightNet. Didn't work at all. Yeah, uh, well, competing with the platform, that's what I'm saying. It's like competing with the platform seems just it's such a heavy lift but if we can empower users on the platform that's a that's perhaps anyway there's yeah. a, there's, but, there's but anyway yeah we learned a lot from that one and we were not intending to compete head to head we were just trying to build something for our own little community right uh but we frankly uh we were too channelized by the reddit source code to be different enough to add enough value to people uh, add a new nexus of attention. Right. Why wouldn't you just put another uh, topic on Reddit? Exactly. And, and make it private if you want. Uh, so but we did have some better functionality, but it wasn't five times better. And my, I should have learned, known from my entrepreneurial career, never do anything unless you can make it fucking five times better than the predecessor. And so that's one of the reasons why, despite the fact that we hate it, uh, the current Game B's home online is on Facebook. Uh, in Facebook groups, unlike in wild Facebook, uh, there is no Zucky algorithm, which, uh, you know, orders what you see, you basically see it in, uh, in the order in which it was posted, modified by when it was last commented on. There's much less ads. Uh, you know, we have control of all kinds of things. Uh, and so Facebook groups, I think, are an unintentional ecosystem that, they, that has uh, emerged to allow us to build some things. Things, uh, at least when we're at the stage of, you know, uh, in the thousands and maybe low tens of thousands. Uh, and that'll, you know, that will then provide us with a community big enough to populate a, either a system or as you, in, you know, uh, iterate a, a meta system that essentially feeds from other systems. Not your, yeah, not sure I, I mean, all, I'm all about the meta system. I mean, right now, I, I, I actually haven't been doing a lot of Facebook work, although I'll probably start engaging a little bit more in the game B world. But you know, I am part of a bunch of different Telegram chats and Discord chats and all of these other, you know, Slack, Slack stuff. And they're all more akin to a Facebook group where you have a small group of people, they're actually working on something, they're chatting back and forth, you know, there's content sharing, etc. Um, and I'm working right now on trying to like wire that all together so that I have a dashboard and I can interact with any of those different platforms. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I've been, I've been driven yeah. crazy. You know, uh, Facebook also has a discord uh, channel that's been doing uh, quite well in terms of building audience. And people kept saying, Jim, you're not on the discord. And I go, well, I'm on it, but tell you what, there's two goddamn many channels these days. Uh, you know, it's annoying as fuck to actually get uh, the equivalent of email on Facebook and on Twitter and on everywhere. Uh, you collect it everywhere. And it's not, I mean, there are already services like Zapier and whatnot, where you can basically just wire stuff together into, you know, your Slack or whatever you choose, your disk, whatever you choose as your sort of central repository, and then just sort of, you know, blast out from there. So I think, you know, honestly, I, I think we're probably just about a year away from that kind of becoming normal, where people, where people are, you know, pushing information through whatever place they want to, on kind of their own terms. And that and I'd meta love that. system, I think yeah. is re really important. I'd and then, 
once you get to digital signatures and a couple of other things, you know, I think we'll start cleaning up a lot of the, you know, um, sense making fragmentation too, I hope. Yeah. And, uh, and so that gets us to the, you know, the last two parts of the deep game B philosophy. Uh, one is uh, decentralization. Uh, so again, uh, in theory, we're strongly in favor of the decentralized web. We don't want don't want there to be choke points, uh, not and not just because game A can choke them, but frankly, uh, if game B grows up in a self-organizing network-centric fashion, there'll be parts of game B that go bad, right? And we'll want to be able to route around them, just the way the internet you can route around, uh, you know, bad nodes on the internet easily enough. And then finally, and this is where we come back to the generator functions and the self-terminating nature of game A. Game B must be meta-stable, uh, and that means that it should be able to exist into the foreseeable future, though realizing, this is the meta part, that it will have to adjust and dodge and weave to circumstances as they co-evolve uh, with other uh, groups on the planet, the planet itself, maybe even solar weather. Uh, and, and when I say, as far as I can see out, personally, I put the stake in the ground 500 years. Yeah. Uh, if if, if uh, a game B social operating system, civilization level social operating system could uh, dodge and weave its way to 500 years, God knows what the world looks like in 500 years. Game A, I'm reasonably convinced, won't make it 100 years and could easily collapse a lot sooner than that. Uh, and so uh, getting up to a traditional uh, social operating system lifespan of 500 years, would it be a huge net win from uh, the likely calamity we're, we're facing uh, by the end of this century uh, as game A seems to be imploding on itself? Yep. No, agreed. I'm always saying that, you know, we're working on a 500-year project here, so keep that in mind. <laughs> I'm glad we uh, converged that same number because you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot, actually. And, and again, uh, Jordan Hall and I have had some arguments about that. He wants, you know, game B to last forever. I go, fuck forever. 500 years would be great. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, forever is, uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, what about game C? What I get? <laughs> there, there will be new pressures and we're not going to get something that just is... <laughs> Uh, yeah, meta stability is always going to be related to cycles and context specific. So there's going to be destabilization and and a and a regeneration of something new that takes place. I, I would say that's my that's my read on on my impression of empirical reality. Exactly, and that's one of the big takeaways I took I got from my long sojourn with complexity science at the Santa Fe Institute and on work I've done on my own, uh, which is, a, frankly, epistemological uh, modesty about what can we predict uh, and how far out. Uh, I mean, there are gigantic changes are coming, uh, some that we can guess about, like what are the real implications of advanced AI going to be? Frankly, I think they could be paradise, right? Uh, what did somebody call it? Luxury? Uh, decentralized communism. Somebody uh, 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 created that brand. I th think it's kind of interesting. Uh, if we could push most of the work off on AIs, uh, maybe the Marxian paradise arrives without Marxism. That would be great. Uh, you know, uh, there could be real breakthroughs in energy uh, production. Uh, you know, photovoltaics keep getting cheaper and will probably keep getting cheaper for quite a while, but there may be even some bigger breakthroughs and, and some of which may be ones that are deep in physics that we can't even see right now. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, uh, man-machine interfaces are, uh, you know, within 
just a few years of becoming real. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. Uh, I just posted something in, uh, I think, Game B yesterday about uh, a new finding that, uh, in mice at least, they found the, the control center for pain. Uh, a deep, powerful control center for pain, which they've been looking for forever. Uh, and I can see that having both bad and good uh, in effect, effects on the future. If we actually have control, fine-grained, powerful control uh, over our pain centers without, you know, having to play with, uh, you know, ridiculously dangerous things like, uh, uh, you know, heavy-duty opiates, et cetera. Uh, okay. So, you know, the, con the, the context of coevolution uh, even 100 years from now, it's going to be very different than it is now. And 500 years from now, it's literally unimaginable. So that's why I pushed the, 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 the wall out no further than that. Yeah, well, it, it's, I mean, it, there's a whole spectrum of, of probability. I would agree it's almost certain. It's most likely that it's unimaginable. It could also be that we're sort of like falling backwards due to various different pressures and it looks a lot like it did 500 years ago who knows <laughs> yeah and that's of course that's you know again I, I'll, I'll give you my uh um uh, i still think uh, some of the best work i've done in this area it's in an essay called in search of the fifth attractor mm -hmm. uh, i don't know have you read that i i didn't read that one no i'll i'll make sure to go back and and do that but okay, i then. but i love the concept of attractors and i think it's an important concept to sort of understand these probabilities and and to exercise our free will to sort of push towards the ones that actually make sense all right great well i'll tell that in the story of the fifth in search in search of the fifth attractor so first for the audience what's an attractor it's a term from complexity science uh and you can think of it in this sense i'm using it in it's a little bit of a metaphor but imagine uh that game a the society we currently live in is you know, a 40-dimensional set of force fields that at any given uh, second are in some certain configuration. So now let's think of that configuration as a salad bowl, right? a big old salad bowl, uh, and various places on the surface of the salad bowl basically uh, correspond to different places in this 40-dimensional phase space. Now let's throw a marble into the bowl, uh, and the marble rolls around in the bowl, uh, and the place the marble is, is the current configuration of the system. Uh, and let's say the bowl is always undergoing some, its shape is changing as new inventions happen, new ideas come along, wars happen, people randomly die, pandemics occur. So the, the bowl is morphing and shaking a bit, so the marble is always moving around. Uh, <laughs> now let's imagine a big shock to the bowl. Let's say somebody just punches the bowl. Uh, and it's quite possible, in fact, we know if you punch the bowl hard enough, the marble will fly out of the bowl. It'll go whoop up the side and just go up into the air and fall outside the bowl. So now what happens? So let's pull the camera back, the video camera back, and guess what? Around the current bowl that we're in are other bowls, yeah. uh, which we can call uh, basins of attraction uh, for the marble to land in. And some of them will be big, some will be small, some will be, uh, you know, concave so things will i guess convex so marble just bounce off of them and go somewhere else and so uh my theory of the fifth attractor is that there are four attractors out there that exist all of which are worse than game a and uh here are the ones i call out i'm sure this is not an exhaustive list but one uh 
I think very disturbing one, is neo-fascism. Uh, and I point to China as the exemplar of neo-fascism. They may call themselves communists, but they're fucking fascists. You know, uh, basically state capitalism plus nationalism plus militarism plus racism. You know, the Chinese are about the most racist motherfuckers on earth, right? If you're not a Han Chinese, you are the scum of the earth in their view. Uh, and so, you know, they are a classic neo-fascist and uh, they are very disciplined. They have uh, a lot of smart scientists and uh, it may be that fascism failed last time from lack of good tools. Uh, so that's one we have to uh, look at uh, very, very seriously. Uh, another one is uh, I call neo-feudalism, and I'd call that the Peter Thiel uh, Koch brothers model. Uh, libertarianism run amok, uh, you know, hyper uh, post-capitalism run amok, where a small number of masters of the universe control everything and the rest of us are serfs. Mm -hmm. And that could definitely happen. That would be essentially, a, uh, you know, again, the, uh, the Peter Thiel Koch brothers uh, uh, vision. Uh, third one. This might be the worst of them all. Neo-Dark Ages. Uh, you know, uh, religious fundamentalism is on the rise all over the world. You know, every variety, Hinduism, uh, Christianity, Islam, probably other wacky, wackadoodle shit that we don't even know about. They had their way. Uh, they take us way back in the past, right? They hate uh, change. They hate uh, humanity uh, moving forward, questioning the scriptures and getting control of our own trajectory. And remember, Rome... Uh, was a pretty advanced place. In fact, from a public health perspective, the West didn't recreate Rome until 1900. Holy mm -hmm. shit, right? And our construction abilities about a little before that. Uh, you know, Rome could build stuff in, uh, say, at the height, say 250 AD, uh, that Europeans couldn't build uh, until maybe 1870. Uh, so we fell a long goddamn way and we stayed down a long time uh, due to being embraced by a particular variety of religious fanaticism. And then the fourth bad attractor is that general attractor of chaos. Uh, you know, it's important to realize that uh, Western civilization uh, is at the top of a very high stack of emergencies, right? Uh, the electric grid, the ability to build computer chips, uh, the ability to manufacture fertilizer out of the air using the Haber-Bosch process, without which there'd be a massive die-off, uh, many others. Uh, with a big enough shock, perhaps a big part of that infrastructure collapses and we can't figure out how to put it together again. Uh, you know, I had a very good chat with Zach Stein about uh, yesterday, actually, um, for my podcast. We talked about uh, could there just be a failure of intergenerational knowledge transfer such that there was nobody smart enough or well-educated enough anymore to, uh, to run a nuclear power plant or to uh, build an Intel chip factory, and we just fall down. Kind yeah. of like foundation, like Isaac Asimov yeah. foundation. Um, which, by the way, was the first science fiction book I read when I was nine, and uh, I probably took too many lessons away from it. Harry Seldon, there is no such thing, but nonetheless, yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in fact, well, I, I, was, I actually think there's a strong correlation between psychohistory and my perception of kind of the complexity sciences as an aside right keep keep going yeah, towards yeah. that fifth attractor okay so so now here's four bad attractors here's a bowl which like many of us in fact all of us in the game b world agree is shaking mightily and is getting punched i mean this pandemic is a punch right uh, and in fact in the game b community there's an argument whether this punch will cause the uh, marble to fly out my own view is it will not 
but as we talked about earlier, it will open up a huge number of, uh, of new hysteresis spaces for new things to evolve uh, so that we're better ready when the punch does arrive that's big enough to fire the marble out. But the fifth attractor uh, is literally game B. Uh, it is one that we need to start building now so that it is ready when we need it. And that's why I am so uh, anxious to get these early proto bees up and running in the next year or two, uh, get some game bee ventures launched, uh, start thinking about game bee IDs, game bee currencies, game bee governance, uh, because the more of those things that we have actually working and battle tested, as we talked about distributed web, Maybe that just ain't gonna work, goddammit. We need to find out. Uh, you know, one of my favorites, liquid democracy. I've written a lot about it. Uh, maybe that's a great way to govern uh, a proto bee, and maybe even at the level above proto bees, but maybe not. No one's ever actually tried it at scale. So goddammit, uh, let's build some liquid democracy platforms and try them at scale, see what happens. And so that is what the in search of the fifth attractor is, is this gigantic need to have a good place for the marble to land. Yeah. And if I had to say, you know, why am I putting so much of my personal energy into this? It's so that when the punch occurs to the salad bowl and the marble goes flying, I want there to be a reasonable chance uh, that the marble lands in a good place, not a bad place. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's a great, great metaphor. And I think a, a really um, important vision. I, I mean, I resonate with that pretty strongly. I think, you know, it, it feels it's it's sort of the work, my my take on that this is that this is essentially the work of the moment you know um this is our this is this is it there isn't really anything else uh to focus on i mean it, of course there's so, there's so much beauty and complexity in and an opportunity for yeah i guess to use the words that, that you've been in, inviting um sovereign consideration i mean everyone is going to kind of get their own opportunity to judge where the, the right fit of their vocational capacity you know and, and uniqueness is and what is being demanded by the the larger complex system that we're a part of and i think the that radical experimentation, um, risk taking in order to achieve the kind of scale of um, of experimentation in order to get enough good information uh, and then and then rapidly um, share successes and failures um, is really important. And I see, I mean, you know, in the game B proximate, as you were saying, world, there is an awful lot going on. Um, I, I'm less familiar with actually what's happening that that directly identifies with game B, to be honest, but um, within the regenerative movement, within, you know, sort of the web three, in quotes, movement, um, uh, there's an awful lot happening and an awful lot of um, initiatives now how many of those will be successful um how many of them will even be successful as judged by giving good clean data about their success is i mean we'll see right we, we got to grow a, a lot of capability in order to to do this on the time scale that we have available but but i'm pretty i mean ultimately i'm pretty optimistic i think there's a lot of pretty competent people working at this intersection Absolutely. And I, I also talk about, I've been talking more lately about with people uh, like Hansi and uh, 
Daniel Wall and uh, Bobby uh, Fishkin and a bunch of others about a broader concept, which I call the Big Change Coalition. Uh, and I hijacked the words from Bruce Kunkel, one of the early game beers, uh, which, he, which he calls alignment beyond agreement, uh, which this whole broader community, I think, can uh, agree that we don't need to coordinate on the details as long as we are all in, a, in alignment about a better world that we, we can bring into being. But if we don't, we're going to end up with something even worse than we have. Yeah. Well, and I think that... And I think also not shying away from kind of like getting into it a little bit in terms of like healthy debate um, without it, you, you know, in, in service to learning as a Socratic method for, for, for daylighting, you know, what's, uh, what's important, but without fragmenting the larger coalition of like, well, at the end of the day, we may sort of like disagree in strategy and we'll go and we'll, we'll dive in and we'll, tr we'll try to make, you know, each of those different strategies work. But the deeper commitment is we're going to share information. We're, you know, we're going to kind of like under, understand that there's a, there's a bigger flow and a bigger historical moment here, um, I think is, is really important. And yeah, I mean, I think there are, you know, um, I know Bobby, I know Daniel, I've, I've not yet met Hanzi yet, although I know some people who, who work with him. And I, again, I, I think there's some really competent folks who are pretty deeply aligned um, and sourcing from similar source material, in fact. Um, you know, the, there's, a, there's a pretty high degree of coherence, I think, despite the diversity of um, you know, upbringing, approach, skills, you know, <laughs> it, habits, culture, um, even so, there's a, a high degree of, of resonance, I think. I mean, just sort of your, you have, you, you and I, you come from a different generation. Um, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe you have more similar upbringings than we might imagine but anyway different generation different context different uh journey through life different different um vocation in in some way and yet you know here we are pretty you know sort of like attracted by the same deep signal and the same is true with you and jordan hall or daniel schmachtenberger and there's just a lot of folks i i feel like and those are just the people who are kind of like the most vocal right now i think and there's so many more who are, yeah, just have their heads down um, or, or are, have made different decisions about engagement with networks or what have you. So I think, you know, I think maybe that 10,000 number, you know, maybe an order of magnitude higher, actually. Yeah, if you include the big change coalition, I'm I'm, I agree with you almost exactly. It's probably 100,000. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is very important. I, I, you know, again, my bet, and I could be wrong, I put it at a 75% confidence that this is not the revolutionary moment right now, but... No, I think that's right. This is a, this is a dry run, and it's an invitation. There's an opportunity to grow a little faster, to sink hey. the tap roots in deeper, you know, to create some stability, but I, I would agree. It's, uh, I would even, I think it's even less, <laughs> less but, but anyway, let's say it's, let's say it's, let's say it's 75, whatever. So I'll yeah. pick a number. Uh, but, but to your point, what I, what, the way I've been describing it is the number of people with ears to hear 
that the status quo is rotten, uh, that its days are numbered, uh, and that we need a better alternative than neo-fascism or neo-feudalism uh, has grown by at least an order of magnitude in the last two months. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yep. And so one of the things I'm working on is uh, putting more effort into coherent messaging about game B. No, uh, totally. I mean, you got, we got to compete with QAnon, essentially. Exactly. And uh, of course, we have a challenge is there is no game B. There is no thing called there's the, there there is no legal entity called game B. Of course, but there's, no, there's legal no legal entity called QAnon. Exactly, either. exactly. And we, uh, you know, so you know the Red Religion Network idea, John Robb, Jordan Hall, uh, folks like that. Uh, so we're modeling that kind of thinking and how we do this communication. So this is you know uh, 4G warfare, as John Robb likes to call it. And we're going to have to accelerate that to take advantage of this moment, which probably won't last more than nine to twelve months. Uh, where well, the challenge is though that QAnon. I mean in all likelihood i mean i totally agree and i've been i've been struggling to to figure out how to you know you know push on that and you know to the to degree i mean the podcast um you know some other you know we've been doing a little bit of meme creation and some other things but beyond that it's just sort of you know it's hard because i actually my, my sense is behind QAnon and some of these other things there's actually a huge amount of money because those there's both an organic uptake and sort of, you know, uh, a movement, a headless movement, as well as I think some pretty significant sort of propaganda, disinformation money behind it. And who's going to put the money into the, the coherent, you know, <laughs> regenerative game B network sense making who's going to pour their money into that from game a in the short term in order to sort of put things on par I, not to be a naysayer but that's my, that's a question that i've been asking a lot yeah it's one of the reasons why in our uh, online tools group one of our highest priorities is to pick and stand up a white label crowdfunding platform for game b so we have a, i mean there might be a there um I might be able to support a little bit in that. Uh, my co-founder uh, created a crowdfunding platform called We the Trees uh, back in 2010 or something like that. Um, it still runs. It's, it was created for uh, crowdfunding permaculture um, initiatives. Um, and I, I, I know some other ones as well, but, you know, I mean, I don't know. We'd have to chat with him. I don't know what the... A, I don't think it's the source code's been upgraded in a long time, so yeah, I don't no, even I, know if it's I, useful. I, but. I'm not going there. I've been th through this drill before. Uh, one never wants to uh, dig into old source code uh, for a system that humans have to use because uh, uh, UI, the whole experience thing evolves so rapidly, you got to yeah. be current and fresh. Just, just build it again. Yeah, or I'm not going to build it either. I'm going to find a white label platform, of which there are several, uh, but I haven't had the time to do it. And God damn it, one thing that annoys me is my uh, the online tools group. Uh, uh, nobody has volunteered to do that work, uh, to actually dig through what are the current state of the arts of uh, white label uh, crowdfunding tools. I really wish somebody would uh, uh, rise up and do that work because I don't got the time, God damn it. Uh, but we'll see. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. That's the downside of self-organizing. Uh, you know, you, you can't make people do anything. Well, why is it necessary to, to use a different crowd? Why not just use existing crowdfunding platforms and just aggregate through the groups and sort of push, uh, you know, push and self-fund in that way. Is it actually a bottleneck to use a, a white-labeled branded one? Is that? 
Uh, you know, my sense is that we would want to have um, easy discovery. And if the stuff's scattered all over the fucking place. But that, to me, uh, Jim, I mean, just to, just to push on this a little bit, to me, it sounds like it's the same meta system challenge where, you know, if we're going to use existing networks and we're not going to try to like pull people over, you know, it's more the, the capability to push memes to sort of coordinate a, a set of groups. You know, the, to me, it's more like what we need is integrations and bots and other things that make sure where whatever fragment of this, the, the platform world, somebody's engaging, that information gets to them one way or the other. That's the same challenge as, as competing with QAnon memes or whatever. It, and so to me, it's less about, you know, like having a, a white label um, crowdfund and, and more just like what's the capability What's the bot network? What are the integrations between platforms? You know, um, where, just like who, who's churning, who are the humans who are just like sitting in their chair six hours a day, just, you know, churning, writing content, linking, cross-linking, you know, maybe right, automating some pieces of that, et cetera, et cetera. Th that to me feels like it's, you know, if we learn anything from the 2016 election cycle, that's what was affected. That's what they did. Exactly. Right? So. Uh, Anyway, uh, that's an interesting thought. Um, you may be right. I'm, I'm going to reframe my thinking about it in that, from that direction. And, you know, one could, let's say, for instance, if you found one that had Zapier automation with it, uh, exactly. one could uh, post a message to, uh, but again, this is a curation problem because some of it's going to be shit. Uh, you could post a, a message to uh, the Facebook group or on a Twitter feed uh, about each uh, new project that comes along uh, with a link back. Uh, to, to the platform, to its resident platform. Uh, but again, there's the problem of curation. Uh, well, I think that the problem of curation, probably we have to approach that with kind of like a, a loose, like a little bit laissez-faire and say, okay, can a couple of people agree to do their own curated lists? But, but other than that, just do, just like let it go. <laughs> and, and hopefully there is a bunch of, you know, hopefully there's, a huge growth and with that is going to come some stuff that's not so great but we sort of rely on you know whoever the community leads are who say i'm i'm going to commit to doing a curated list um that just sort of like drives an extra little you know I like people this. people being influencers essentially. i like it that's a good uh, good meta thinking i will admit I'm, I'm probably less meta than i ought to be so it's good to have this conversation yeah well hopefully that's that's helpful and you know if there's a way that we can kind of like weave our our socials and and you know like lean into that i'm i'm always happy to to help because i think you know our particular role in this we're really trying to you know um verification uh quantification and agreements about ecological states that's kind of region networks sort of uh, focus in all of this but but only because we feel like that's that's a piece we didn't see somebody else necessarily focusing on in this larger matrix of you know I think what what you're referring to, and uh, you know, it's a great sort of name a handle for all of this is Game B. Yeah, great. Uh, let's do a sidebar conversation on that crowdfunding thing, because as you point out, uh, at some level, you, know, you need some level of resources to to be loud. Fortunately, the num the, the amount of resources is relatively small, right? Oh, it's pretty low. I mean, if you think about the what the level of resources that that swayed the election, it was very. It's very low. So I, I think, 
if there's clarity of strategy, you know, it's really just skilled people sitting in seats and doing some automation and pushing some things out and a good editorial team and, you know, keeping that running for whatever it is, the four pivotal years right now, to me, it does feel like that's something that's needed. And the amount of funding is, it's, you know, it's probably, um, you could definitely do it on a million bucks a year, probably. So. Yeah. And a million dollars a year. Let's you know, let's say we have an extended uh, big change coalition of a million people. Let's take our current hundred thousand, uh, and you know, uh, from a million people, could we generate a million dollars a year in crowdfunding? I'd say probably yes. But yeah, no, exactly. And probably there's also a way that you could get, you, you know, you if you think of this as like a big tent consortium, you know what it there's whatever, businesses like Region Network um, or Neurohacker or whoever, there's also a way that, you know, pitching in a little bit, perhaps, um, you know, gets you, because there's also sort of products and services of a, you know, loosely affiliated sort of proto-B ecosystem of folks who are giving it a crack. So you might even be able to generate a little bit of advertising, although we, we want no to be adver strict. No advertising. Well, well that's, well, this is the question is like, do you put a two-year piece where you're like, hey, we're willing to, you know, sort of approach some sort of advertising piece and everybody knows that there's a sunset clause. Anyway, I'm just yeah. to throw it in there because yeah. otherwise the fundraising for that million dollars, um, th there is no, um, I mean, it's just, a, it's like a political donation, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And, that, that's how, then that, that would be, you know, one of the ways to think about it. But there could be sponsorships, you know, that are less obnoxious than advertising. Uh, or again, to the degree that advertising is not mining the user behavior, it's less dangerous. So there's a lot of ways to think about well, it. Right. I guess that's what I'm thinking is it's less about, anyway, there's a whole, and there's a whole piece where, where we are um, stepping on the shoulders of the user behavior data in order to target to invite people into a different place. So there's a very like, there's a very interesting dynamic, complex, mushy middle here and where we draw the line strategically in this. I mean, it's very important to, to get it right, but it might also be more of a phased approach where um, you just have to, you know, break some eggs to make the omelet and then, you know, and and then afterwards you, you're transitioning. You know, once you achieve a certain milestone, you, you just cut that off because, yeah. Anyway, I, I mean, I don't have an answer for that, but yeah, yeah there's a lot, lot of good thinking. We ought to do a, you know, a one-on-one -on -one Zoom conversation just on this topic. I think you have some good ideas. Uh, I certainly feel a need for it for the reasons you highlighted, and I think the time is right. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, I would welcome that. I, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, great. Well, we're sort of up just just past the, the top of the hour here, and so. Um, probably a good, good moment to make it a wrap. I'm really grateful to get to chat with you, Jim. Um, thanks for taking my listeners on a little tour through the Game B world and a little bit of your thinking. Uh, very much appreciated. And yeah, thanks, thanks for all of your uh, work helping make this transition possible. Yeah, and thanks to your work too. I mean, we're all playing the same game and this was, this was enjoyable. I got a chance to uh, you know, think, think while talking, which is sometimes dangerous. I don't think I made a complete idiot out of myself, but that's all right, even if I did. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, part of the process of getting the word out and, you know, letting people uh, take an advantage, uh, particularly now, just uh, so much more 
uh, interested in getting the word out because there's so many more uh, ears to hear who are ready to uh, join the broader cause and whether they join regen or whether they join game B or whether they uh, become meta modernists, frankly, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, we're all headed generally the same direction. Yeah. No, yeah. It doesn't ma matter. And in fact, we might think that there's a, you know, sort of an ecosystem of brands because different people resonate with slightly different pieces. And it actually, it's, it's good to have a polycultural approach instead of a Absolutely. monocultural approach. Right? Sure. I've, I've been making that argument to people within Game B for a long time that uh, uh, many people will not resonate with the Game B brand, even though they would agree with the destination. So why should we try to co-op the whole brand space? Yeah. Yeah. Depth in, in heated agreement with that. So, you know, and, and it makes it more creative too, especially if you start to think of like there, there being a little bit of resources pushing on this a little bit. And, and part of that can be people co-creating and trying out different ways of conceptualizing it, branding it, you know, um, and seeing what actually works because exactly. we don't know yet. We, don't, we exactly. just don't know yet what's, what's going to resonate and with whom. And that's, let's wrap it up on that point, is that we know less than we think, and but we need to aggressively experiment and back what works, kill what doesn't. <laughs> Amen. All right. Thanks so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Very good. Cheers.